Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm a resident with an organization called NETS, which stands for New England Training and Sending. I'm here with my wife, Katie, this morning. Our two kids are down in the nursery, and it is uh, just fun to be with you this morning. Uh, so if you would, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be focused on verse 11 to 21 this morning. So open up there if you could, and let's read. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 11, Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's go to the Lord in the word of prayer. Our Father, we need your help this morning. We need you to help us so that your word does not go in one ear and out the other ear. Help us to hear it well. Help us to see your son, Jesus Christ, and help us to be better followers of him as a result. Give me grace, Lord, to preach well. We commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm wondering if you've ever flunked a test. I remember flunking a big geometry exam my sophomore year of high school, and I blame it on the Boston Red Sox. See, my dad and I had tickets to a Sox-Yankees game at Fenway Park the night before my test. And since Boston is about four hours from where I grew up in northern Vermont, by the time we pulled back into our driveway, it was already the next morning and already time to go to school. So I flunked. I really don't remember anything about the test itself, probably because I didn't sleep or study the night before. What I do remember is the Red Sox rallying to victory in the bottom of the eighth and the Fenway faithful going bananas. Now I'll admit that I was wrong not to prep for my exam. To be honest, I wish I paid more attention in geometry because to this day I still don't understand how geometry works. But in the grand scheme of things, and maybe if you're a geometry teacher you should just plug your ears for a moment, in the grand scheme of things, 
flunking one geometry test isn't really that big of a deal. At least not compared to flunking the unity test that our passage describes. You see, the quality of our gospel grasp is tested by whether it produces true unity. We'll see in our text that unity is a necessary result of the gospel of grace. And we'll witness the Apostle Peter as he absolutely flunks Unity 101. And it's vital for you to tune in this morning because all of us who pledge allegiance to the gospel of grace must pass the unity test. We must not flunk. And our passage can help us not only to evaluate how we're doing in the realm of unity, but also if we're not doing so well to make progress. I think our text offers us the key to a life of accepting one another, even when it's hard. So let's dive in. Now to understand how it is that the Apostle Peter flunked the unity test, let's establish some background information about our passage. Now this was written to a group of churches in first century Galatia, which is a Roman province in modern, or in, in modern Turkey, back then Asia Minor. And in Paul's day, there was a big kerfuffle about this question. Must Gentiles become like Jews to be saved? You see, the gospel had been spreading from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and through Paul's ministry even to the ends of the earth. And as Gentile Christians like the Galatians heard the gospel from Paul, they came to saving faith in Christ. But here's the thing. In the Old Testament... When an outsider became a member of God's people, Israel, they had to embrace the practices of the Jewish law, like eating clean foods, observing holy days, and most importantly, circumcision. But with Christ's death and resurrection in the rearview mirror, there was debate over whether those practices were still necessary. Paul said, no. He taught that Gentile Christians did not need to become like Jews to be saved because Christ has ushered in a new covenant era which made those Old Testament requirements void. And the other apostles agreed with him. In fact, earlier in Galatians 2, Paul described how he brought uncircumcised Titus to Jerusalem and how the other apostles didn't compel him to get circumcised. I'm sure Titus was happy about that. This proves that the other apostles agreed with Paul that Gentile believers aren't obligated to become like Jews to be saved. But Paul's detractors, the unbelieving Judaizers, vehemently opposed Paul on this point. They insisted that even post-Christ, Gentile Christians like the Galatians must become like Jews to be saved. And here's really where the underlying issue was. It was a disagreement about justification. You see, as sinners who deserve God's wrath, our greatest need is righteousness. And that's a big problem for you and I because we can't produce our own righteousness. As sinners, the only thing we produce is unrighteousness. But Christ's sacrifice on the cross makes it possible for us to be counted as righteous before God. That is, 
justified despite our sin. See, on the cross, Christ took our sins on himself and he paid the penalty for those sins. We know he paid the full penalty because of the resurrection. And with our sins taking away, Christ then gives us his righteousness. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Boy, isn't that amazing to think about? Christian, you are righteous before God right at this very moment. And you say, well, I had a bad week. I've got all this sin. But here's the thing. You're not righteous because you stack up. No, you're righteous because Christ's stacks up. His righteousness is your righteousness this morning. But here was the rub in Galatia. According to Paul's gospel, justification comes only by faith in Christ. No works needed. But the Judaizers said that justification comes through a combination of faith plus works. They conceded that faith in Christ was necessary, but so too were works of the law like circumcision. So with that background in mind, let's examine how Peter flunked the unity test in verses 11 to 14. Paul says that when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, Antioch was north of Israel in Gentile territory, and the church there was mixed. Though it was predominantly Gentile, it also included Jewish Christians. And that can make things like eating together a bit tricky. So if you were on the potluck committee for the church at Antioch, uh, you'd have your work cut out for you. Because on the one hand, you'd have these Jewish Christians who may very well have tight boxes They might still be observing Old Testament dietary regulations. They might still have scruples about how food should be prepared and Jewish holy days. And then on the other hand, you'd have these unkempt Gentile hillbillies who have no problem eating whatever they want, whenever they want, and maybe don't even care if their food was offered to some idol somewhere. But from what we see in verse 12... Before certain men from James show up, Peter, a Jew, was eating with the unsophisticated Gentiles. And we don't know exactly what that entailed. I mean, was he eating a pulled pork sandwich? We, we just don't know. But what we see clearly is that Peter was accepting the Gentiles as his brothers and sisters. He had no problem being with them at all. But when men from James show up, Peter withdraws and he separates himself. And again, there's a lot we don't know about how things went down. But what is clear is that he feared the circumcision party. I think that's a clear reference to the Judaizers. Peter got scared and he stopped sitting with the Gentiles as a result. You see, Peter didn't want to look bad. He didn't want to be a laughingstock because of his association with the unrefined Gentile Christians. It kind of reminds me of his denial of Christ in the Gospels. And when associating with Christ was costly for Peter, what did he do? He withdrew. He denied Christ. So now when associating with Christ's brothers 
is costly for Peter. He does the same thing. He withdraws. He disassociates himself from them. And verse 13 tells us that Peter's hypocrisy had a domino effect on the rest of the Jews, such that all of them, even Barnabas, withdrew along with him. But Paul, seeing that Peter's conduct was out of step with the truth of the gospel, publicly rebukes him in verse 14. He says this, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now what in the world does that mean? Well, I think it means this. Peter was living like a Gentile when he ate with the Gentiles. He was no longer acting like a traditional Jew when he did that. But when Peter got scared and withdrew from the Gentiles, he was essentially forcing them to live like Jews. His actions suggested that they must accept the rules and regulations of the law to be acceptable. Thus Peter was a hypocrite. His lack of acceptance towards the Gentiles was a splitting wedge to their unity in Christ. He flunked the unity test at Antioch. But Paul's not finished rebuking Peter for his hypocrisy. In verses 15 to 21, he explains why Peter deserves a flunking grade. And basically, Peter makes two big mistakes in his application of the gospel of grace. The first and fundamental mistake is that Peter forgot how justification works. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, Paul says in verse 15. That just means that Paul and Peter were Jewish. Paul, a Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus, Peter, a Semitic Jew from Capernaum in Israel. By race and creed, they could claim the benefit of being part of God's people, Israel. They weren't Gentile sinners. They weren't clueless pagans. Yet, Paul continues in verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul reminds Peter that, Because they both knew that justification comes by faith, they trusted in Christ for salvation. And note the redundancy of verse 16. Paul says three times that he and Peter are not justified by works. And he says three times that they are justified by faith. See, Paul's driving home this point. Jewish Christians can't be justified by keeping the law's demands. Despite being Jews, Paul and Peter had to put their faith in Christ to be justified. And this is very, very ironic. Remember, the debate in first century Galatia was whether Gentiles had to become like Jews to be saved. But it turns out that it's not the Gentiles who must become like Jews. No, it's actually the Jews who have to become like Jews. Gentiles. It's the Jews who must recognize that their Jewishness cannot justify them. That it must be by faith, as it was for the Gentiles. 
But at Antioch, Peter acted like a Jew again and forgot the fundamental truth that justification is only by faith, not by works of the law. That was his first big mistake. And his second mistake flows from the first. Because Peter forgot how justification works, he was forcing law-keeping on the Gentiles. Paul says in verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Now there's debate about what Paul is saying here. Some argue that Paul and Peter were found to be sinners in the sense that before coming to Christ for justification, their attempts to keep the law only proved their sinfulness. And that's a defensible position. But I'm inclined to take verse 17 this way. Paul and Peter were found to be sinners in the eyes of others. Specifically in the eyes of the Judaizers at Antioch. I think this interpretation helps explain why Peter was afraid of the circumcision party back in verse 12. See, to them, Peter looked like a sinner for acting like a dirty Gentile because he no longer observed the Jewish food scruples. And you can kind of relate to that. You know, if you were living in a Jewish context and Peter for most of his life had been keeping all these more outward signs of being a Jew, and then all of a sudden he's not doing that anymore, See, even though he's not doing that because he put his faith in Christ, to those still in that Jewish works orientation, Peter looked like a big fat sinner for doing that. And so the question is, did Christ actually make Peter a sinner if he looked like a sinner to those antagonists? And Paul denies that in the strongest possible terms. He says that their total dependence on Christ does not make him and Peter sinners. Christ is not a servant of sin. That is, Christ in justifying Paul and Peter by faith and not works did not truly make them sinners. Instead, Paul argues in verses 18 to 20 that it's those who return to the law who prove themselves to be the real transgressors. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. See, when someone is justified by faith in Christ, they tear down the law. That is, they no longer depend on law-keeping for righteousness. The life of law-keeping lies in ruins because faith in Christ is a wrecking ball to that orientation towards God. So to rebuild what has been torn down, that is to go back to a life of law-keeping again, is to prove to be a transgressor. See, it's very black and white. Justification by law is incompatible with justification by faith. To go back to law is to go back to what's broken and cannot save. That's what Peter was starting to do. He wasn't starting to be a sinner for putting his faith in Christ for justification. No, he was proving to be a sinner by rebuilding the law, using it as a criteria to judge his Gentile brothers and sisters. Verses 19 to 20 expand on the claim that Christians have torn down the law. And verse 19 sums it up. Through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. 
Paul, and by extension, all believers died to the law to live to God. Life follows death. Paul's life of trying to earn justification by law-keeping is dead. And now his new life is lived unto God. And how did Paul die? It was through the law itself. See, back in verse 16, Paul said that he and Peter knew that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. But how did Paul and Peter know that? Because back then, tons of Jews didn't understand this truth. Even today, tons of Jews still don't understand this truth. It was through the law. In trying to keep the law, Paul and Peter realized that despite their Jewishness, they couldn't obey the law's commands. The law showed them their sinfulness. Thus, it tutored them towards faith in Christ. An idea that Paul furthers in Galatians 3. Verse 20 continues to explain how it is that Christians died to the law and lived to God. And here's, I think, how to look at it. What happened to Christ happens to us. Christ died. We died. Christ lives. We live. We've been crucified with Christ. That means crucified to the law. We've died to pursuing righteousness by law-keeping. Now that that's happened, Christ lives in us. His life is our life. That's further clarified in the next statement. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ living in us means that we're no longer trying to live by works. We now live by faith, just like Habakkuk 2 forceps. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in God's Son, who loved us and gave himself for us. And boy, there's the gospel again. Christ loved us. Despite our sin, despite how we scorned him, despite how our mocking voices called out among the scoffers, Christ loved us such that he gave himself in our place so that we who deserve death might live by faith in him. And that brings us to verse 21, which is the capstone of Paul's argument. He zooms out to emphasize his main point. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul doesn't undo God's grace by reimposing law-keeping once more. That's what Peter had started to do at Antioch. And Peter wasn't just wavering a little bit when he did that. He was actually nullifying God's grace. Because if righteousness actually came through the law, that is by works and not by faith, then Christ's death was pointless. It was superfluous, entirely unnecessary. See, the true gospel is the gospel of grace. It's a gospel that by its very nature demands that we never go back to a works-based approach to justification. And the grace gospel says that faith is the only criteria by which God justifies. 
But Peter, when he withdrew from the Gentiles, had started to impose another criteria other than faith on his fellow believers. Therefore, he acted like their faith in Christ wasn't enough for them to be acceptable. And therefore, he flunked the unity test. Peter flunked the unity test at Antioch. But what about us here in southwest Harbor, Maine? Is it possible that any of us are currently flunking the unity test? Perhaps some of you are flunking the test because you're not even enrolled in the school of Christianity. You have not yet put your faith in Christ to be justified by grace. Perhaps that's because you don't see your need for grace. You think you can work hard enough to merit God's favor. I hope that the truth of Galatians 2.16 penetrates you this morning. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you stop your futile efforts to make yourself right with God and admit the obvious truth? That you're a sinner, that you need God's grace. You need the Lord Jesus to save you because of his sacrifice on the cross. Put your faith in Christ alone today. Abandon your works and be saved. And brothers and sisters, does your life show that you are accepting all your brothers and sisters here at Southwest Harbor Congregational Church? Or like Peter, are there some brothers and sisters, perhaps even in this room, who you're really not accepting? You know, not accepting someone doesn't have to look like being mean to them. It can be a lot more passive than that. In Peter's case, it simply meant not associating with certain believers when push came to shove. And I'm wondering if that's the case for you. Are there any believers at this church who you would never think to sit with or share a meal with? Are there any believers at this church who you never talk to and it's on purpose? Are there any believers at this church who you're secretly, or maybe not so secretly, harboring a grudge against? If so, I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is that you're in sin. I hope that's plain to you from our text. But here's the good news. Just because you're currently flunking the unity test doesn't mean that you can't turn it around. You can correct whatever unity-destroying behaviors you're prone to. See, we have every reason to believe that Peter responded admirably to Paul's rebuke in Galatians 2. And so if you're feeling a bit rebuked this morning by our passage, you too can respond admirably. And here's how. This, I think, is the key to living in unity from our passage. It's by making God's criteria for accepting your brothers and sisters your criteria for accepting your brothers and sisters. You see, that fellow believer whom you're most prone to stiff arm is accepted by God simply because 
They've been justified by faith. God isn't foisting some additional acceptance criteria on them. He cherishes them just as much as He cherishes you. Because you and that difficult-to-accept believer are in exactly the same boat, which is justified by faith alone. See, when we're not welcoming another Christian, it's because we've decided that they need to bring something to the table other than their faith in Christ to be acceptable to us. You know, maybe it's that they need to share the same values, like in terms of how to spend money. Or maybe they need to share our definition of what being on time means, or what dressing appropriately means. Maybe they need to share our political views. Maybe they need to have a certain personality, you know, a likable personality for us to accept them. Or maybe they need to have the same outlook on parenting or time management or diet or sports or hobbies or education or music for them to be one of our people. See, we sin against our brothers and sisters and against God himself when we impose some acceptance criteria that God hasn't imposed. Therefore, we must identify and abandon any and every sinful acceptance criteria that we impose on others and make God's criteria, which is solely faith in Christ, our criteria too. If your brother or sister in Christ is in the faith, you need to accept them. Done, period, no questions asked. And whatever self-imposed criteria is preventing that from happening must be ditched so that we can live with the unity that reflects the gospel of grace. May God help us not to flunk the unity test, but to accept one another fully completely, with maximum sincerity, so that we might stay true to this gospel all the way to glory. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for a gospel that makes us righteous before you simply by faith in Christ. We're thankful that you're not foisting some criteria on us other than faith in him. And Lord, I pray that you would blow us away by that reality this morning. And Father, that you would help us to be more like yourself and that we would not foist some criteria on others to accept them. Lord, would you help us to be people that are peacemakers, people who are striving for unity, people who are accepting one another because you have accepted us. Lord, use this word to move us forward, we ask. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.